You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the We Are Libertarians 2020 Presidential Candidate Series. I'm your host, Hody Johns, and today I'm joined by Libertarian Presidential Candidate for President, as you would expect, Adam Kokash. Adam, how are you doing today? Outstand yourself. Although I, I do have to point out, while, while technically I am a Libertarian candidate for president or Libertarian presidential candidate, Libertarian presidential candidate to me sounds a lot better than actual candidate for president, not just because it has this great word libertarian in it, but that technically I'm not actually running for president. I, I should say technically I am, but in, in the truest sense, I'm not. Uh, what I'm doing with this candidacy is turning the presidential election into a referendum on whether or not the federal government should exist. So my platform, I get elected, I resign on day one, I go in, sign one executive order, maybe a, a pardon or you know a whole list of pardons, and sign one executive order. We declare the federal government bankrupt. It is of no authority. All of its laws immediately are unenforceable, and it becomes a custodial institution or a holding company, if you will, going through a bankruptcy proceeding. So I resign uh, on, on day one. That's, the, that's part of this executive order. I resign from being presidency of the United States to being custodian of the federal government to serve as a bankruptcy agent to guide us through this process that as much as possible is laid out in advance. So I, I say this because uh, no offense to, to, to uh, well, I guess there is some offense intended here. With, 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 with all due respect, uh, in, in other matters to, to anybody else who may be uh, actually running for president uh, in 2020 or at any time in the future or the past, you really have to be some kind of psychopath to want to be president of the United States. You, you really have, there's got to be something wrong with you to want to have this, this unjust control and authority over your fellow human beings. And so that's not me. Just got to make that clear from the beginning. But hey, from here, we can talk about anything. And I'm happy because we've covered the important point and it's that America would be better off without the federal government. And as of right now, uh, I'm the only candidate who's, who's turning his, you know, using his candidacy or her candidacy for, for this particular purpose. Sure. Uh, literally the executive order to end all executive orders. I'm going to use that one. That's, that's a good one. I, I hope you don't have that copyrighted. Sure. Uh, no, believe it or not. I haven't been good at patenting any of my stuff. So yeah, you're, you're free to use it all. Um, okay. Well, fascinating for sure. Let's, uh, let's go down the list. So let's start, let's talk about you yourself. Let's leave politics out of it. Every other question I have is going to have something to do with politics and stanzas and philosophies. But let's talk about who you are, your family, your friends, how you're raised, your work. Just uh, get to know you personally. Well, uh, in one question, right? Okay. Uh, well, I was born in San Francisco. I am a lawfully born U.S. citizen, uh, although that's, that's, that's almost getting too political already, isn't it? <laughs> Man, I'm really, I'm, I'm really bad at following directions, which I suppose right away makes me a really good libertarian. Um, but I was, I was born in San Francisco, grew up around the Bay Area. Uh, you know, my parents were, you know, upper middle class, successful economically. You know, they got divorced when I was 10 and uh, my brother was eight. That was the only, you know, significant traumatic event of my childhood. 
and uh, it was it was pretty bad. Um, my parents had a, a pretty vicious divorce, but they were both deliberately, conscientiously uh, anti-authoritarian in, in in really deep, meaningful ways. And for my mom, I suppose it was that she was Canadian. She she got her green card, and 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 now she's 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 passed the test, the multiple choice test. She's now a U.S. citizen and knows more about. Uh, American civics than the average American. She knows but, the third bar of the Pledge of Allegiance and gotcha. Okay. Yeah, right. uh, and she drove my brother and I around a lot, you know, soccer practice, band practice, stuff like that. And we had two choices for music in the car, oldies or classical. And for us, it was always oldies. So like today, you can still put on like any classic rock radio station and I'll know 90% of the lyrics and be rocking out and singing along. And there's, you know, I, I mean, I, I, this makes me sound like even older than I am, which is really bad, but you know, there's music these days just ain't what it used to, you know, and there, there really was, and you can still hear it, you know, on all these stations or classic rock stations that, there, there was a, a more deliberate, conscientious spirit of rebellion, perhaps, in mainstream music of that era. And, and, and she didn't just, like, you know, sing along. You know, we, we got into it, and, and, and she really, you know, gave me a sense of that. And my dad, so she, but she was also sort of vaguely liberal, but, but, but very eager to teach me all the ways of, you know, getting around authority and, you know, minimizing its role in your life and, you know, it's not it's not a foul if nobody sees it kind of stuff that was that was her attitude to some uh-huh. degree and and my dad uh was was from well she was from montreal went to college in wellesley uh well my dad was at harvard and that's where they met in, in, in boston and uh, he had grown up on a cattle farm a cow ranch rather in in near sundance wyoming and was a uh, real like academic superstar got a full ride scholarship to Culver Military Academy. From there, full ride to Harvard. Um, went to Harvard Business, then Bolt Law, which is Yale Law School, or I'm sorry, not Yale, um, uh, Berkeley Law, which is uh, or was number four in the country at the time. Yeah, uh, ended up getting into to business, uh, started his own venture capital firm, and really, my father is. Is, is one of the, I, I think at, at this point, and this is relatively recently, like within the last year, uh, one of the real great uh, unsung heroes of the freedom movement. And, and he will, for a long time, you know, never, you know, but the, the, he's, he's very much an out of the kind of guy. And I, I don't think the world or, or America or the American freedom movement will ever really fully appreciate the, the contribution that he has made to freedom in the United States and the sacrifice that he made in order to do this. But he was running uh, a venture capital firm that was doing, that was managing uh, over $1 billion. So, I mean, it's, it's it not, it's significant, but not huge in the world of venture capital. Uh, but the SEC came after him. This is like 18, 19 years ago at this point. Yeah. And, and he could have, he could have just buckled. You know, he could have done what a lot of these guys do in his position and said, oh, it's the SEC. It's too big. Oh, it's government. I'm going to be obedient, you know. Um, but but he fought the case. 
and he had his business trash, he had his reputation trash in the business community among people that it was relevant to in his world. Uh, he had, you know, criminal charges pending for, for a lot of this time. Yeah. And just, uh, just last year, no, I'm sorry, year before last, uh, the case finally went to the Supreme Court. And, and you can look this up. It's SEC versus Kokesh, Securities and Exchange Commission versus Kokesh. This is Charles Kokesh. Um, I'm Adam Charles Kokesh. That's the father's name becomes the middle name, family tradition there. Sure. Um, but if you look up Charles Kokesh or Kokesh versus the SEC, you'll see that, that what he did was stand up in a hugely significant way at great cost to himself uh, over a very long, difficult, trying period of time uh, during, which, during which he went through another divorce. Uh, so it's not like it was, it was, it was easy on him in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, and when it went to the Supreme Court, he won nine to zero. And to get into this is this is without getting too technical on the on the details of the case, it was basically a thing about disgorgements versus fines versus punishments versus you know if 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 an investing company did something wrong. And this was a case where like I'm I'm really proud to say of my father's business practices and records. Um, he, he's not perfect by any stretch, and he's done a lot of stuff with a lot of businesses. And there, you know, uh, you know, there's always going to be people who who have disagreements, but. Uh, in, in this case, it was very clear with the SEC where how they were charging him for a misappropriation or misallocation of funds or something like this, uh, that like he had stolen $45 million. And it's like, I, I lived with him. He, we did not have an extra $45 million laying around. Like we live, like we live, we live comfortably, you know, but it was far from luxurious, you know, and, and we had financial challenges at times, like, you know, any, any American family, I suppose. And um, it was it was really and there were there were no complaints, literally zero investor complaints, uh, you know, related to what the SEC was charging him with the effect of his victory that, that says the SEC can't go after companies in this manner. Can't can't try it because what they were doing is they weren't they weren't saying, Mr. Kokesh. You misallocated $45 million and you have to give it to us so we can give it back to the investors you stole from. They're like, no, we don't like the way you did business and we're going to fine you $45 million and you're just going to give it to us. And the SEC gets billions and billions of dollars this year and all these other alphabet soup agencies that operate in the dark. And, you know, these are kind of low publicity things. It's not like, you know, my dad's venture capitalism firm disappears and everybody goes, geez, where's that restaurant on the corner? Or what, what happened to Radio Shack and Kmart, you know? Sure. Yeah. But, but, but these kinds of federal enforcements do have, uh, you know, a major effect. And, and, and he has, has effectively uh, kept billions and billions of dollars a year from now on, from this method at least, out of the hands of these federal enforcement agencies, which means that business owners are going to be able to hold on to that and use those funds to continue serving people through their businesses. And that's, that's really huge. So I'm very proud of my father for that. Yeah. And that's, there's a whole era in, and it's, I, I didn't know this even happened, I guess the year before last. And it, it, it makes sense. I, I just remember that the, the, what they would always do is strong arm somebody. They would expect them to fold. 
and just say it's going to be long, it's going to be tedious, and eventually person's like, I just don't want to fight this anymore, gives it up, and they just do it to all the lower, you know, the the, the if you're not a central bank, basically, you know, yeah, right. if you're well, not anybody that's trying to bully in a submission. Right. They just say, okay, well, we'll catch you on some rule because there's millions of them. I can't believe they didn't catch your dad on one. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, that, that is the kind of surprising thing is that they didn't. Well, my, my father was very careful, and, and I've taken a lesson from this and in some situations. You know, he was very careful to not attack anyone in government until it was legally settled. And a lot of us as libertarians, we make huge mistakes in, in understanding government. I, we have a better understanding than, than any non-libertarian, of course. But we, 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 we have some, some typical mistakes that we make of like assuming that government is this monolithic, single-minded entity. And it's not. It's, a, it's, a, it's an institution made up of, tw- in the United States, 22 million people. You know, that's what, like 7% of the population works for government, directly works for government. Sure. You know, not counting all the indirect. But even in, in the, and, and, and we think sometimes, you know, and, and I've presented this model, and I think this is more accurate, that like a judge, for example, is, is only going to make the right decision when that judge needs to in order to maintain their power and credibility, Right. You know, if there's no public pressure, a judge, you know, nobody paying attention, judges will make terrible decisions. I mean, you look here in, in, in New Orleans, where I'm right now in Louisiana, uh, where I'm, I'm fighting the shall ID laws with a lawsuit from my arrest a month ago. Uh, you know, it, it's, it really centers around corrupt judges. And, but even then, judges are human beings too. And, and a lot of them, you know, like I joined the Marine Corps for the right reasons. Because I wanted to have my life on the line for something I believed in. I wanted to be of service to my fellow Americans. There was something sick in that, too, because I also said, if, if my government says someone deserves to die, I want to be the one pulling the trigger, which is uh, you know, sick militarism flip there. But um, anyway. That's a so- lot of libertarians' journey is they go to that, they have that experience, and they say, well, the- I really was expecting a lot of these people to be a lot guiltier than they were, you know? And, and yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we have to really keep that in mind and sort of like, I, it's really important to remember that, you know, we talk about the state as, or the governance that we experience is a product of the paradigm of the people. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely believe that. Or as de Tocqueville said in, in 17 or 1831 democracy in America, in, in a democracy of people will get the government they deserve. But there's, there's something so much deeper to that because in, in the way that the paradigm determines what the government is, we have to recognize that the government is a part of us. And, you know, very few of us were born libertarians. Sense, well, yeah, well, we're all born libertarian. Of course, I'm, yeah, I'm with you there. Sure. No, that actually, but, I mean, the next question, you can keep going. The next question is actually going to be your personal liberty journey. So, I mean, it's... Well, it's, let me, let me yeah, yeah, let me tell you a question. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just combine those two. Then. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, because I, sh- I shouldn't be talking so much about my parents, right? I'm, no, you're good. I'm deflecting here. No, you're but, fine. Um, I, I tell everybody, you can take as much time as you want. I'm here for five hours if you want five hours. I'm just trying to be respectful. You got these 16 questions, and they're all going to stay the same. Man, I've got I my drink. I'm okay. listening to myself for, for five minutes. You want me to go five hours? <laughs> <laughs> I'm to do to your audience here. But no, so it was, it was from 
my parents that I had that anti-authoritarian spirit with a pretty low understanding of the philosophy and political implications related to that. And so I thought, I'm going to be rebellious. I'm going to join the Marine Corps. You know, and it's like, well, what, what? Like, no, you're being subservient and killing for politicians and following orders. Like, well, what do you tell? Like, if you, if you would just step back and told me at that point, I'd be like, you know, I, this is, <laughs> oh, this is to, to jump way ahead, I suppose, for just a second. This is why I am so passionate passionate about libertarianism being communicated properly as a message of ethics, first and foremost. Don't hit, don't steal, don't kill, even if you work for government. And if someone had told me that then, because I, I at, at some point I, I started identifying as a libertarian in high school. I was the libertarian in the Marine Corps, you know, in, in my unit, you know, but even then I was a terrible libertarian, obviously, at least by how I would assess myself today. And it was because in high school, at some point in some civics class or something, they, they don't do that civic stuff anymore. But um, I was, I was asked, do you want to be a Republican or Democrat? And I said, wait, 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 wait. This is America. I'm supposed to have a choice here. Are you telling me I have to be lame? Like, I, I really don't have a choice? And they were like, well, there's these libertarians over over there, and they never win anything, but they, they like to be left alone. And I, I was like, yeah, leave me alone. That's me, you know, just, just as a punk kid. And Would you rather have I, red licorice, black licorice, and that's it? You're like, wait, no. isn't there caramels? There's toffee? Come on, there's got to be something else. No, no, this is America. You can't do that or you're a loser. Yeah. But, you know, I, <laughs> um, I was introduced to libertarianism as socially awkward, fiscally, I'm sorry, socially liberal, fiscally conservative. And that, that is a really gross misrepresentation of the message through a very narrow political lens. And if politics is the conversation deciding who do we point the guns of government at to organize society, obviously our answer as libertarians is nobody, nobody. You don't get to organize society by violence, defense only. You know, that, that's, that's a fundamental ethical principle that, that, that we generally ascribe to. And if at that time I had been presented with libertarianism as an ethical message, I never would have volunteered to join the Marine Corps. Uh, I never would have volunteered to go to Fallujah in 2004. Uh, I never would have tortured people on orders. I never would have helped in, in, in the, the, the killing of, of people in Iraq. I never would have been a part of that military occupation. Uh, that's what it was at that point. Uh, the imposition of martial law by a foreign military. And you know, I was a reservist. I went to college because uh, I wanted to do my enlisted time as in the reserves and then go active duty as an officer so I could tell other people what to do yeah. full-time and only take our orders part-time. See how that works? Yeah. Um, but, but after after getting out, uh, well, I, I, got, I got back from Iraq in 2004, went right back to college, Claremont McKenna, Southern California, great school. And I... 
I actually volunteered to go back because I didn't get a purple heart the first time. That's how twisted they make you. They call it brainwashing. And brainwashing is way too kind of a term for how they condition you and mess with your head because brainwashing is to suggest that what was in your head before the, the Marine Corps got there was dirty. And we're going we're gonna to clean that up for you. And when you're fully brainwashed and your brain is nice and clean and ready to go and be obedient and part of the hive, you know, then, then you're clean. And it's, it's absolutely rubbish. Uh, I read a book called The Lucifer Effect recently that talks about this situation where you don't have to – it found that most of the police were doing things they didn't like doing, that they were, do, they were following orders they didn't like following, yeah. but the system kept going. And it just talked about the things that they would do, and they're little things. And metals was actually one of those things, you know, and, and just, just little things and uniforms and things like that that they would give you that, that give you this appearance of authority or this saying – yeah, I know this seems like a bad thing, but it's really for a greater good. I'm sorry you hate doing it. And uh, I think you're touching on a lot of that right yeah. now. It's not like this, you know, I lock you in a room and, and do the MI, men in black scanner across your eyes type of brainwashing. <laughs> you don't have to. Right, but and it's that, a system. That's important. Yeah. Is it, it, and this is, you know, if you look at like the Milgram obedience studies, my undergraduate degree was in psychology. And so to me, this is it's really important to understand, you know, and this is so important. I think to understanding our, our shared humanity that, you know, when you look at, you look at someone who has done evil and instead of saying, Oh, they must be a monster. They must be inhuman. They must be something. So you know, that, 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 you know, I couldn't, it's, it's not possible. No, like I, I'm a good person. I'm a well-intentioned person. I have always done the right thing to the best of my ability, to the best of my understanding of the situation. And my understanding was so warped. That when they told me, and, and the torture that I engaged in, in in Fallujah in 2004 was sleep deprivation. It wasn't like I was, it wasn't a big part of my mission. It wasn't something I had the opportunity to think through or, or, sure. or a big part of what I did. I was civil affairs. I volunteered to go in civil affairs because I wanted to help people. I thought we were going to be, you know, rebuilding Iraq and the tip of the spear in that effort. And, and part of my disillusionment was experiencing otherwise. But when I was ordered to guard detainees and keep them awake, even though they were, uh, you know, sitting in, in piles of their own excrement and smelled terrible and had sandbags over their heads and their hands zip tied behind their backs, I, I complied. No, go. Oh, well, these government says these are the bad guys. They must be the bad guys. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my job, you know. And and it's it, it's it's given me, you know, a, a measure of appreciation for, like you said, the cops that, that you know, in, in, in that book who, um, you know, who, who are in that unfortunate situation where they're, they're essentially being bullied and lied to and misled in, 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 in some subtle and, and some not so subtle ways to, to do evil uh, because, you know, they're, they're, they, they think in some bigger picture it's justified. And this is, you know, again, one of the great things about libertarianism is that it, it, when communicated properly, don't hit, don't steal, don't kill, even if you're government, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't do that anymore. People who understand that 
you know, don't become cops, don't become soldiers. And if we grew up in a world where people understood that, not only would we be in a much better world to begin with, but yeah, we wouldn't have or, or even have any pretended need for government. Yeah. So uh, when I got out, so I, I brought a pistol back from Iraq as a souvenir uh, when I went there in 2004, and I actually got in trouble for it. And long story short, I got caught uh, as I was in the process of volunteering to go back to Iraq and ended up sitting at a barracks at Camp Pendleton for a year as a, as a sergeant who speaks Arabic with civil affairs combat experience. Why am I not deployed, you know? And it was, it was extremely frustrating. I got a, a medal, a Navy commendation medal for my deployment the day before I got busted from sergeant to corporal before getting out and saying, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just, I've, I've, this is the complete experience for me at this point. Thank you very much, Uncle Sam. And I, 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 I'm not, I mean, I was, I was, I was a little bit active in, in college. I, I, I ran a college libertarian group, but I wasn't really an activist in, in, you know, in the full time, you know, really like commit yourself to a cause kind of sense at all until I got out of the Marines and I, I moved to DC to get a master's in political management at George Washington university. And while I was there, this is uh, it was November 30, 2006. I got out January, 2007, I, I got to DC and was starting grad school. And I came across the website for Iraq veterans against the war, IVAW. And I was just like, Iraq veteran against the war. Well, that's me, you know, got to have my name on the list. And I didn't think about the implications or what I was just, got got to have my name on that list. And next thing you know, I'm running away with the circus known as the anti-war movement. And to, to get to the story of, you know, my, my journey to liberty, it, this is obviously, you know, my parents, high school, the Marine Corps. But then it, there was a really big critical step with IVAW. We did a lot of civil disobedience activism. I got a lot of great training during that time. Yeah. Uh, got my first few arrests under my belt. Became a, a national public figure for the first time with my case when the Marine Corps came after me. And uh, for, for, for protesting in uniform. And that's, that's a whole other long story. But, but more importantly, with IVAW, I was surrounded by lefties. You know, obviously the anti-war movement was dominated by lefties. But in, 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 among anti-war groups, IVAW was the, the least leftist because we had a lot of guys coming out of the military who were conservative or moderate or, you know, quasi-libertarian like myself. But I went into this with an attitude like, uh, well, I'm a libertarian. I, I know I'm right about everything and I just have to prove it, right? Yeah. And, and I had all these great conversations with, with, with so many, uh, uh, especially these other anti-war veterans, but other, other leftist activists in general, but especially with the, my fellow veterans. And there was something like really beautiful and genuine about those conversations because I knew that these were good people in the sense that they were willing to risk their lives, not just in joining the military, but in standing up to 
the military and in standing up to militarism and standing up to the policy of the global war on terror as former participants. Like that was huge. Uh, so when I was, and, and people who were willing to get arrested with me, you know, a lot of these conversations happened while, while we're, you know, in handcuffs on a bus on our way to a, you know, processing station or something. What's your name, by the way? <laughs> but, yeah, by the way, that, but that thing you said about the Communist Manifesto last week, I really got a little bit more, what do you think of this? Um, that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, turning it into a bit of a cliche, but, but it really was that experience for me that challenged me to get a deeper understanding of my own worldview and, and libertarianism especially because there is, you know, like, like, like I've been pointing out, I think in the story, I'm not especially bright. I like to learn the hard way, you know, just dumb enough to join the Marines, just smart enough to figure out it was mostly bullshit. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to say I'm the smartest man in the room. I'm not here to say I'm the most ethical man in the room or the most open-minded or creative or anything like that. You know, I really did kind of fall over backwards into this. If it was, if I wasn't disgruntled when I got out of the Marine Corps, I would not have started questioning things the way that I did. In fact, I might've stated, I might've gotten out and become a cop. You know I mean? That was something I was considering at one point. Yeah. Um, I, I was either going to be a really corrupt asshole or I was going to be like the coolest, like not write any tickets, like nothing but warnings kind of cop, you know, who would get fired after a couple of years for that. Yeah. But, but there was really something about this experience with IVAW that led me to the bottom of the, the philosophical rabbit hole of libertarianism, so to speak. There is one thing about me that I, that I will brag about in the context of all this humility, which is that I have a, a certain sense of, of certainty that, that, that has to be satisfied and, and, and combined with a sense of justice and, and a willingness to put my life on the line for what I believe in. But it was really that sort of determination to figure things out because in these conversations, say about education policy, if I'm talking to another veteran about education policy and he's saying, well, we need the federal government to do this and we need government policy to do this and this. And I'm saying, no, free market, like no community based. No, it's got to be voluntary. But we both, I, I know that I'm not arguing with a shill. I'm not arguing with someone who is, obviously, this is someone who was just in Iraq just willing to kill for Paul and has now said that was wrong. You know, I mean, that's, that is that, that, and, and I, I do take some pride in that as well, that I was able to go from that, realize it was wrong. I'm going to speak out against it because a lot of people can't, you know, th there is a sort of, uh, you know, um, operational and intellectual flexibility and open-mindedness. I suppose that I, I, I demonstrated in that, that I saw, and my fellow veterans. So when I'm debating other people and they're going, no, we need government for this and for this and for this. And I'm like, well, <clears throat> I know you're well-intentioned in this. I know you and I really genuinely both want to figure out what's the best way for us as a society to educate our children. Yeah. 
there's got to be a right answer to this question. And, and, and what I really like about the way my brain works in this sense is that when the conversation was over and we just went, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. I went, no, 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 no. I mean, yeah, we're cool, but I, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. You know, I, I'm going to consider what you said. I'm going to go research what I said. I'm going to research what you said. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And, and the bottom for me was reading Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard. And I was actually running for Congress at the time as a Ron Paul endorsed Republican. Now, when I got back from Iraq, I actually became a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party back 2004, back when it was only $1,000 and it was my, my deployment money and it was the, the first time I could afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a lifetime member of the LP. And there, there's, um, you know, again, that, that, that being presented with the, the message as, as, as the ethical message being so important here. Uh, but even as a lifetime member of the LP, I become a, you know, semi-prominent public figure with Iraq Veterans Against the War. And there were a lot of, and I was, I, I, I organized veterans for Ron Paul. We had a big event in Washington, D.C. Ron Paul is the choice of the troops. Uh, and you can go check that out. Ron Paul is the choice of the troops. It's the only thing that'll come up for that. A couple great videos about it. We did a huge march through, through D.C. to the White House and, and uh, the Washington Monument. And uh, there were a lot of Ron Paul supporters who wanted me to run for Congress, but with Ron Paul's strategy, it, you know, I couldn't have his endorsement or direct support unless I ran as a Republican. So, you know, I gave it a shot and I lost in the primary because uh, I made the mistake of trusting the Republican establishment, even at the state level. You can't do that. Uh, basically, I went to them and said, this is a heavily Democratic district. You guys never win here, not even close, but I'm willing to run as a Republican with anti-war and military veteran credibility, if you don't have someone who has some of this credibility to appeal to the lefties in this district, you're never going to defeat Lujan. You're, you're never going to – you, I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to win, but compared to your good old boys that you run, I, this, is, this kind of candidate is the only one that – like if you want to run as a Republican in this district – you're gonna have, you're gonna have to have some crossover appeal whether you like it or not. And I'll tell you, I'm not running to represent the Republican Party except in this race. And it should, you know, I hope I hope that that that's that's a good alliance. And they said yeah. And then at the last minute, they they filed papers for one of their good old boys to run against me, who uh, who beat me in the primary and then lost miserably in the general. And so it was a lesson learned the hard way. But it was it was a great experience and a lot of good lessons learned out of that. Uh, and so I couldn't shut up when the race was over. So I got a radio show and that, that was the birth of Adam versus the man on AM 1550 KIVA, more positive talk radio Albuquerque. <laughs> and after about six months, uh, I was going to get canceled cause I just wanted to talk on the air and, and I didn't want to sell ads. I was supposed to sell my own ads. Uh, but I was making more money growing marijuana quasi legally. I had a medical card there in, in my, uh, in my apartment in, in Rio Rancho near, near Albuquerque. Had a great experience with that too. By the way, this is going to be my last long answer. I promise. Um, no, but <laughs> I had, I had my neighbors complain about the smell once cause I was smoking on my patio 
and police officer came to the door, knocked on the door. Uh, and it was funny because my dad was in the apartment at the time and he said, excuse me, sir, we've had some complaints about the smell of marijuana coming from this residence. And I said, give me just a second, sir. I actually closed the door on him. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go flush all the evidence. Cool. No. Um, so I went, I got my card and I just showed him my, I went, I opened the door, I showed him my card and, and he looked at it and was like, Yeah. Okay. Have a nice day, sir. Yeah. What can I do? <laughs> yeah. So remember, this was this was back in uh, 2011. So 2000, late 2010, I think it was. Late 2010, this happened, or, or maybe early 2011. Sure. Um, Not that like, your reputation precedes you or anything, but it's nice to hear about you having a victory over law enforcement. <laughs> Not get going to jail. I have victories over law enforcement all the time. You're just not going to hear about them in the mainstream media. But uh, no, I mean, I had a great victory here in New Orleans, which is why we're pushing this lawsuit. Um, maybe, maybe I'll figure out a way to work that story in later. But uh, this, so isn't I, our, this isn't our last interview, by the way. I, I'm doing uh, interviews with all the candidates. We'll keep going. We'll know. do follow-ups. Okay. Yeah, well, then, follow-ups. we'll get a, we'll get a follow-up when there's some more meaningful. Uh, stuff to report on uh, about this lawsuit that we just filed about a week ago here in New Orleans for, for false arrest and battery uh, and, and a few other things. So uh, with, with that, uh, my rate, I was doing interviews with Russia today, RT America on a regular basis. And uh, they started interviewing me more after I had stopped running for Congress, even though I'm not active with IVAW. You know, but I, I'm an anti-war veteran. Okay, so they can they can you know interview me for that. But they started interviewing me. I was like, you know, I wonder I wonder why that is. And it turns out they were kind of uh, feeling me out for how I would be for my own TV show. And they offered me my own show, and I, I took it. Of course, was very excited about it. But I was only on the air for four months before I was canceled for uh, for political reasons. I, and, and and there are a lot of different theories, but. And, and, and I can't say this with absolute certainty, but it seems like it was because uh, I demanded uh, absolute editorial control and, and they, they, they genuinely respected that with a couple formatting issues only. Uh, when I interviewed Ron Paul, this, this, was, this was literally the only editorial disagreement that I ever had with the network. When I interviewed Ron Paul, I wanted it to say on, on the Chiron, on his, his on-screen title, I wanted to say, Ron Paul, next president of the United States. And they said, no, 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 that's, you can't put a joke in the Chiron because that's RT official letterhead. You know, that's our, that's our journalistic integrity. You can put it anywhere else on the screen. You can call it whatever, but you can't put it on the Chiron. And that was the only thing. They respected, you know, everything else I wanted to do. And I was, I made a deliberate effort to be uh, appropriately critical of Putin the way that I would in my general coverage of, of world events. And, and I was. Um, and it was right after I had done a story uh, about, about the midterm elections in Russia being stolen. And this was, this was going back to uh, 2011. And this was the time I had the Jefferson dance party victory with the police um but uh, there and there were there were a lot of victories in that episode uh including getting the dance policy enforcement changed for dance enforcement policy changed for for the jefferson monument and uh winning my case as well 
but um, then I I uh, went independent uh, and I you know took Adam versus the man into podcast territory uh, was was pretty successful with that focused on my YouTube channel built it up to over 70 million views and uh, then went uh, to do my shotgun civil disobedience in DC and ended up doing four months in jail as a result of that, including two in solitary confinement, which was a whole other lot of fun. And uh, while that may have been a loss in a lot of legal ways, I think it was still a huge victory for freedom because the local, the local TV, they loved that footage of me racking the shotgun. Every time I went to court or there was any, they just, Play that 11 seconds over and over, 20 seconds of that video over and over again. And uh, when, I, when I went to general population, by the way, uh, I, was, I was a little apprehensive because I've been sort of safe in solitary. And now I'm like, I'm the only white dude on a black you know, block, like all black dudes and a handful of Hispanics. But as soon as I got there, I was mobbed by dudes. Like, we saw you on TV. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, so they're, they're, they got it. And I, I always feel, you know, aside from being a former Marine and, you know, physically capable of, of, of taking care of myself, uh, if only because I know that I, I bring that visibility, uh, you know, I, I feel very safe when I go to jail. And I understand that there's, there, I, I have a lot of, um, there's some white privilege in that and there's some activist privilege in that. But, uh, you know, if, it's, if it means not getting taken advantage of in the shower, I'll take it. Right. Uh, so after that, I, you know, I, I kept going with Adam. Well, I started writing the book, uh, freedom. And this is the ultimate red pill for libertarianism. And I, I say that with a lot of humility because, uh, I had a lot of help writing this book, uh, both in the inspiration and the ideas. I do not claim originality with any of the ideas in this book. In fact, on, on the thank you page here, uh, there, there are listed, you know, uh, a, a whole page of names, most of whom are, are authors and activists who were really more critical to developing the ideas in this book than, than, than I ever was. I just decided that when people sent me all these great books when I was in jail, that we needed the one ultimate conversion tool, and I decided that I would be the very best ripoff artist the freedom movement has ever known and take all of their best ideas and none of the bad ones and boil it down into one hundred page, very easy to read, easy to understand, easy to digest, sort of cliff notes of, of, of libertarianism. Uh, but there are also a couple elements in there that I included that are sort of not standard fare, if you will. Um, you know, and my book has been, fairly described as a condensed version of For New Liberty, which is one of the major uh, inspirations for sure. Um, but, you know, Rothbard writing in 1973 could not have exactly predicted the trajectory or the accelerated nature of, of the technology that we're experiencing today and how it's taking off. And, you know, this conversation being possible online from, you know, halfway across the country and that we have, you know, the, 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 you know, truth button of the internet at our fingertips now one click away. And, and to me for war, this is the most important thing that, you know, you can lie to us, but you can't get away with it. Like you used to be able to, even, even when I was convinced to go to war in 2004, 
the lies that made that possible, you just you couldn't get away with today. So uh, I guess that gets me to, you know, I was in LA and doing my podcast again and then decided to really focus on the book and just tour on the book. And um, when, you know, I've been, I've been on an amazing journey since then. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back into podcasting on a more consistent basis soon. I've been just kind of, you know, here and there, wherever I've been, I've been really pushed out of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Facebook and YouTube in particular. And, and I've kind of given up on those, even though, you know, I've got almost a quarter million subscribers on YouTube. I just recently, and I haven't mentioned this yet publicly, but my entire channel was demonetized. Um, I've, they've been going video by video. Like if I law, if I, if I go to my email that's attached to my YouTube account, it used to be like, Every day there'd be a new email. This video is demonetized. This and I've you know three thousand plus something up there because I've been you know I've been making videos since I started with IBAW back in, in two thousand eleven pretty regularly. Yeah. And uh, you know most people know me through my YouTube channel uh, or or my you know appearances on on, on other media or, or mainstream media coverage. And uh, it it really is, man. Now I'm sidebarring so much. I think I probably answered all sixteen questions. But uh, there's, there really is something tragic about the internet being developed in the age of government because corporatism and intellectual property and, and government control of the internet have really blunted its potential. Uh, there, there was, uh, it, it seems like the internet has almost been taken over by government at this point. I don't know if that's, that's maybe too strong a, a way of describing what I'm getting at here, but it seems that, you know, when, when, when I was really active with YouTube for maybe from like, you know, when I got out of college, like 2005 to, you know, maybe, maybe even 2015, you know, that there was this like 10 year period where it was like, Oh my gosh, the internet. And it was this like amazing free space. And YouTube was like such a, a huge part of that. But now, you look at YouTube bought by Google, you know, having, having kicked out so many people, you, you don't really trust YouTube as the um, truly, you know, really open platform and free speech platform that it once promised to be. And, you know, we've had various attempts and it, there are competitors out there. I don't mean to say that, you know, you can't get a video up on the internet no matter what it is. Yeah, you can't. It's great. But we don't look at the internet the same way, I think, as we did maybe pre-2015. And, and we're coming into a new era of sort of, you know, corporate control over the internet. And it's, I mean, the internet is still really, the, the, you know, maybe next to cryptocurrency, which is almost like you know, made possible because of the internet. But you know, the internet itself, you know, really are to argue with it being the most important in, invention of of our generations of our lifetimes and and this, this you know it, it is such an important tool but uh since we invented the internet before we got rid of government we're gonna have to use the internet to get rid of government and i'm okay with that so that's that's me there you go awesome well, the uh there you go the complete biography of adam kokesh right here <laughs> on the uh, podcast everybody um well, let's, okay, so, so you've kind of already addressed it. I do wanted to, so my next three questions were all going to be, when you become president, what are the three biggest issues and how do you put a stop to them? Now, you already told me what you're going to do. 
So sure. how are you going to, I guess, tell me about those issues that you see and how you, what your plan would do to alleviate those problems. Yeah. So I, I thank you. And I'm, 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 it's a great way to, to, to address those questions. I mean, if you would ask a typical candidate, what's your number one, number two, number three, you know, they're going to hit you with their emotional bullet points of, well, I want you to be safe and I want you to be rich and I want you to feel good about being an American. And, you know, here's my, my whatever. Um, when, when a great you Bob Dole impression, by the way, you just nailed it. <laughs> I think I was like, I'll try to be a lot of impressions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you pulled that out of it. Uh, I'm Bob Dole. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, or I feel your pain, right? It's Bill yeah. Clinton. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> or Hillary Clinton, hardworking Americans. <laughs> but uh, with, with, um, that when I when, when if I were going to try to answer your questions, what are the top three issues? I, I wanted to, I want the audience here to know that the way I would look at that would be you know what are the greatest injustices in the world? You know where is the greatest suffering? Where can we apply our efforts to alleviate human suffering most effectively and efficiently? How do we stop the most pain? Like it, it, to me, it's it, you know justice. When when you put it in terms of injustice and human suffering, there there has to be a kind of triage, and so that that's how I would look at that. And and I I do as as much as I am part of the American tribe, uh, I do as, as much as possible try to think of of myself and all of us as, as members of the, the the global human family. So when when I look at the world and I see what, you know, what are the greatest injustices in the world? War, poverty, the banking system, the war on drugs, the police state, the violation of civil liberties, you know, you can't help but notice if you're really looking at the problem of justice or injustice and violence in the world today, you really have to admit that 90 plus percent of the violence in the world is done in the name of government. And that of the remaining violence, 90% of that is directly caused by government, primarily with the drug war, but also the war on poverty or all the things the government does to increase poverty and increase desperation. So you get rid of government, 99% of the violence in the world goes away. What violence is the government preventing? And, and you know, government gets a lot of credit for, for the decline in violence that we've experienced. But I think that's more a product of the technology. You know, we have DNA evidence now. We can catch killers and, 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 and rapists and, and, and really horrific criminals. And like I said earlier about not thinking about government as this, you know, monolithic, single-minded thing. You know, there are a lot of good people in government who have been able to do good things, catching bad people and stopping bad people. But that's, you know, that's less than that 1%. And they don't even do a great job of it. And we could do a much, if nothing else, a more efficient job. If you, and this is to not challenge anybody's concept of government even, but if you just got government down to the community level and allowed for there to be competition in providing public safety services, at least among jurisdictions, we would be way better off. We'd be so much safer. You would have so much better 
law enforcement when law enforcement means much more in line with the natural law than the victimless crime laws and control and command laws of, of, of government. So that with that premise, I look at it at the world and, and I see this, this problem of coercive government. And, and this is, this is in the book. This is one of the things that is somewhat not typical fair because a, a lot of libertarians, by the way, a lot of people who watch the news and, and mainstream media, you got to understand how the mainstream media works in a sense. People don't watch the news to be informed. If they wanted to, I mean, that's part of it. I don't mean to demean the average, you know, five o'clock local news watcher, but if you really wanted to be informed as efficiently as possible or as much as possible, you would not be watching an hour-long show with 16 minutes of commercial breaks. That's insane. With teases and bullshit and dancing squirrels and the firefighter saved the kitten from the tree. <laughs> no. And, and this politician loves you so much. No, you're not, no, you're not going to do that. No, you'd be listening to We Are Libertarians or Adam versus the World or something, right? Or, or, or well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a reader. You know, I, 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 I like Drudge Report, and I like, I like my feed on Twitter that allows me to do sort of my own version of that. But that, it's an extremely efficient way to take in a ton of news. So you wouldn't be turning to that, that highly inefficient way if there wasn't something else in it for you. And it's the emotional gratification. It's the Oh, you're right about things. Yeah, you're right. Keep voting Republican or Democrat, and we'll tell you which one. Or if you can choose, we'll even let you choose. We'll be fair and balanced about it. And you can do whatever you want because you're a free American, and it's okay. And keep working your job, and you're right. You're so right. Oh, yeah, you're totally right about that, too. Go back to sleep. We got this. Where And, and unfortunately, a lot of libertarian media producers or pundits uh, or, or advocates even, uh, do the same thing in their own version, sort of libertarian version of this, which is be angry. Government sucks. The world is going to hell and government is getting, that's kind of the Alex Jones model. You know, Alex Jones doesn't come out and say, yeah, we're going to elect Trump and everything's going to be better. Cause it doesn't, his, his viewers aren't that dumb. His listeners aren't that gullible. Um, but they, they don't want there to be a solution. Because there, if, you're a, if you're a libertarian who makes your living through other libertarians' anger and government actually goes away, you're out of a job. <laughs> you know? like, and and I, I don't mean to say that there aren't plenty of, of genuinely well-intentioned libertarian media people out there. But to those who put forth a lot of time and effort into production and long-running shows and never ask the question, how do we actually solve this problem? How do we actually get out of this? There's, there's some at least intellectual, if not actual consumer you know, dishonesty in that. So to me, the answer is localization. And it's you take government apart from the top down. You don't have to challenge, like I said, anybody's vision of government. You're a liberal. You live in a liberal state. You're a conservative. This is jumping ahead to question 11 and 12, I believe. If you're a liberal, you live in a liberal state, you're a conservative, you live in a conservative state, uh, you know, why do you want to be tied to these other people through a central authority where you have to argue and say that there's one answer that's going to be forced on everyone? That does not make any sense. 
wouldn't you rather respect, isn't it more American to say, I'm going to respect your self-determination as a separate community, and I'm not going to appeal to a president or a central authority to force my opinions on you and your community. Yeah. So this means that we can get rid of the federal government get down to states and be stable at the state level. We can get rid of state governments, get down to the county level. And once we're down to the county level, I mean, not only, I mean, government might be so insignificant that we don't even care anymore. I mean, I would love that as a libertarian, that, that I would, this is one thing I would love to be wrong about, that we keep government forever, but it's such a, like, a ridiculous afterthought of society and we're all 3D printing rocket ships to take over other planets that like, oh, there's someone got a parking ticket. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Like we just, it's, it's just, uh, just, we, we don't even care to get rid of it, you know? And, and, and it might come to that point where if we get government down to the county or the community level that we're able to achieve a more or less voluntary society as government transitions to voluntary institutions as communities are able to break off as maybe cities become, you know, private corporate entities. You know, let, let's not say like, well, like what do you do with the city of New York? These are people who want to live close together and put up with a lot of bullshit. Let them just, you know, don't figure out a way for them to do that. That's, that's like as a, you know, corporation or. An don't subsidize them basically. Right. That's not, that's not, that, that's ethical. Like we, you can do, you want to live together. You want to be miserable. Okay. And by the way, New York is a great place to visit. God bless y'all who can actually live there. Cause I could not, but um, if you want to do that, I don't want to take that away from you. Right. So back to the way that you suggested, I answer this question about how I go in, I sign this one executive order and the process is all laid out in advance agency by agency. And in this executive order, we have as much detail as is necessary to make it absolutely clear what this process is and appoint secretaries who won't be the secretary of defense, but rather the custodian of the defense department to take that agency apart and to fulfill this basic executive order that is what the American people actually voted on to happen. So every single agency of the federal government is either going to be localized to the states, liquidated, or liberated, just to keep the three L's there. But no, spun off as a, as, as, as a private institution of some kind, right? So for example, localized, Department of Transportation, really simple. Every state already has its own DOT. Cut it up into 50 pieces, you get this piece, I don't know, real simple. Right much more complicated. Okay, sorry. Uh, so that's, that's, that's localized. Actually, you actually, you don't destroy anything. You just take it and you, it's, it's something like the Department of Transportation is more or less providing the legitimate function of road creation, development, maintenance. We, we don't want that to go away. We don't want to pull the rug out from anyone in this entire process. So that's an easy one. Uh, liquidated. I know there are plenty of federal agencies we would be happy to just never, ever hear from again. And that, like IRS, you know, CIA, FBI, DEA. Um, but even with them, there has to be a conscientious process. And there's two elements of this that are very important. And one, and I'm really looking forward to this. This is one of my favorite parts about this, because when we do this, we get to release all the records no more secrets it's like all everything comes out 
But even in order to do that, it has to be done responsibly because the federal government has a lot of private records and personal records that it would be, it would be criminal for us to release and saying, hey, we got all the FBI's papers, blah, here they are on the internet. So call me a statist, if you will, but what I'd like to see, and, and, and what I, you know, we have to work out the details of this still, but I, I believe it's gonna be something like the National Archives is gonna get an endowment to, to maintain itself and handle these records for as long as is necessary. It's probably gonna be several decades. So when, when I assign a custodian of the FBI to dissolve the FBI, they have to take all of the records out of that agency and hand them over to the Library of Congress to be able to, although we'll probably rename it so it doesn't have Congress in the title. Um, but, you know, the, there's, there's maybe the, we'll call it the Library of Federal Records at that point. But they would, re, they would be going through redacting personal information or private information that shouldn't be released and handling that, where the custodian of the FBI, the other part of their job, is to liquidate the rest of the assets. Sure, it makes so, sense. It makes sense. You know, ninety-five percent of the personnel go home right away, and 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 you know, hopefully, we'll be able to organize a, a reasonable severance package. They're already going to have two months' notice, which is better than most people get because they're going to have from the election to taking office in January. That, that's that's plenty of notice, right? But they're going to have to be skeleton crews at these facilities. There are some facilities where we're going to want like at the FDA. We definitely want to get rid of the FDA. It's done. It has no legitimate purpose. However, we might find that they have certain facilities or laboratories that we, we want to preserve as, as valuable economic units um, in, in some form of public trust or, or, or something else. But if not, basically, it all gets liquidated. Um, and what we do, so spun off. I have, I have two examples of agencies that get spun off. Uh, well, well, three, I guess you were a library of Congress, right? Is one. Um, the other two big, much, much sort of bigger money wise are uh, social security and the VA. And you look at the, the veterans administration, I'm a veteran. Um, I mean, even, even just last week I had a horrific experience at the VA um, that, that you, you, you look at the stories that we hear and you're just like, you know, it, it, to someone who's never been to the VA, you're like, how is it possible for bureaucracy to screw up medical care that badly? And for veterans? You know, so I think, I think most people who look at the VA uh, aren't against it. You know, most Americans, we, we want to take care of veterans. It serves a legitimate purpose. The problem that we have as, as libertarians with the VA is not that it exists and that it provides medical care for veterans, but that it's funded by taxation. So we spin it off and we can end that. I think it would be appropriate to give it a small endowment so it can keep running for a period of time without collapsing. But when you spin it off, this is where blockchain technology immediately comes in and gives us a, a great opportunity. We give the VA to the veterans. And every single veteran in America gets one ownership voting share on a blockchain, transparent, complete control. We give it a charter. Maybe I get to appoint, uh, you know, a custodian. Well, I wouldn't appoint a custodian, but I would appoint a chair and a board of directors. And we would create, you know, their first task would be to create the charter uh, for the VA and, and the mechanics of, of that. So 
And then social security. The reason I want to continue social security is, is very important here, not just because I don't want to pull the rug out from underneath anyone. Um, and again, it's like the VA. We don't have a problem with retirement programs. We have a problem with forced retirement programs, you know, being run by government. So social security seems to provide us with the best opportunity for what we do with the liquidated assets of the federal government. As a bankruptcy agent, I have a fiduciary responsibility to pay back the true uh, creditors of the bankrupt institution. And the national debt on paper to foreign banks and foreign governments uh, and foreign corporations, that's bullshit. It is an illegitimate debt. You can't, it, in fact, it's interrational, intergenerational child abuse because you are forcing your children to pay for something that they never had a say in. And that's, that's really sick because we're selling our children into a kind of debt slavery to government through this mechanism that we've allowed called the national debt. So, I, I try to emphasize that as much as I can whenever we talk about the, the, what the debt really means. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it, you put it in those terms to people who have never heard it that way, or, you know, oh, oh, yeah. It's really deep, undeniable truth about that. That's, that's obvious. It doesn't require any more explanation. It's a very powerful uh, way of communicating that, so thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, but what, but what, what I want to do is pay back the true creditor. So we're going to, we, when, when I declare, when we declare with this executive order bankruptcy for the federal government, the debt that's on the books like that is wiped off. And the only debt that the American government has, except for maybe some small specific individual claims that we might honor in this process, the only debt the American government has is to the American people. And it's never going to be fair. You know, there are a lot of lefty ideologies that say we need a fair society. And, you know, sorry, it's never going to be fair. And if you want a peaceful society, if you want an equitable society, which is more important than a, a fair society, you're going to have to stop being so materialistic. And this is one place where I got to acknowledge, I think every libertarian uh, would acknowledge, you're never going to untangle that knot. You're never, for, for everything that governments have stolen from people over the years, for every way that another human being has ever hurt another human being in the name of government, you are never, ever going to see anything remotely close to perfect justice for that. And that breaks my heart. I mean, that is, I, I really have, you know, this ideal of, of perfect justice and to know that, no, we've just been screwed way too bad for way too long. It's not, sorry, that's, you're just going to, but if there is, if, if we can do something to make sure that everybody's taken care of for a while, that at least everybody who's been immediately disadvantaged by the state gets some compensation, that people who have paid into social security for their entire lives don't get completely ripped off in this process. Yeah. I, I believe that the best way of doing this is as we liquidate the federal government, we spin off the social security administration as a private trust whose mission is to receive the funds from the liquidation and distribute it to the American people as broadly and equitably as possible. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. The, any, historically, any attempt that people have tried to make everything fair and equal has always resulted in massive 
awful poverty, but uh, they do a decent job making equality and poverty, I guess, except for the people <laughs> right. in charge of it. So let's um, let's take a step back from the presidency. Let's try to get you through a through. Let's say you've already earned the. We're working backwards. So right. <laughs> backwards from presidency. Now we're gonna let's say you already achieved the primary from the libertarians. You're going against whoever the Democrats put up, and then probably Donald Trump, most likely. And Daniel Schultz, hopefully, if he doesn't run for the LP nomination, which I highly encourage him to do. No, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's other names too. But the next four questions I'll, I'll just combine because you have addressed kind of all of them at once. But to say there's a, we have a, a left and a right in this country. We have a social left. We have an economic left. We have a social right. We have an economic right. So on the social left, you know, they're worried about the disparity in their communities. On the economic left, they hate seeing the fat cats get their tax breaks. On the social right, you've seen attacks on churches and the, uh, the threats that the states hold over them if they don't practice in certain ways. And then um, economically on the right, you just see government spinning out of control and getting bigger and bigger. Why would you appeal to them more than the Democrat or the Republican candidate? Sure. You, can break, you can break those down in four pieces if you want, or you can address it as a whole. It's your call. Well, I, I don't. I don't think I have to address it. You know, piece by piece. In, in the way, my favorite campaign slogan that we've had so far is, "We don't have to be united under one government to be united in American values." And this idea of localization of government, of just just getting it down to the state level, but really ultimately down to the community of of a voluntary nature level. Yeah. It's the everybody gets what they want strategy. You want this out of government? If you can find other people who want to live together in a community who want that out of government, you can have that. If you don't, you can live in a community where that's not a thing. If you want something else, as long as you're not forcing on anybody else, you can have that. And so this is, you know, libertarianism is, is synonymous with anarcho-capitalism and its, its philosophical roots. And anarcho-capitalism, I really have a big problem. I, I have... You know, Murray Rothbard is mentioned by name, and he was the one who took me to the bottom of the rabbit hole. But, and, and, and you know, talking with Walter Block recently, he made the case for the, the anarcho-capitalism being deliberately inflammatory. Like, we're tiny. We need to get people's attention. What's wrong with calling it anarcho-capitalism? But we're t talking about this beautiful philosophy about ethics and freedom and, and peace and harmony, and then you take the two least popular words to describe it, anarchy and capitalism, and put them <laughs> together into one word guaranteed to offend everyone, hello. Um, so I think voluntarism is, is a much more important way of describing what we're talking about. And I like libertarianism, the bigger inclusive term, but specifically philosophically, voluntarism, the ideal that all human relationships should be voluntary and free of coercion. And so if you say, well, that's anarchy, no rulers, Okay, kind of, but we could have, if it means no government, that's not really true because we have student body government and that's a, a voluntary form of government. You could have, you know, a, a homeowners association and, and if you wanted to change it to the homeowners government and call it, we wouldn't put a gun to your head and say, no, you can't use that word. I mean, and, and the same thing with capitalism. And so, you know, again, my, if you want, to, you want me to go to the extreme and cover all those four categories, say you're a communist, right? If you want to live in a communist commune, I, under, in my world, you can have that. You can create, and you don't have to convince the whole world 
to get on board with your program, you can do it in a community and show people how it works. And if you can convince them voluntarily to have a system that, that you call communism or socialism, even if you want that, you know, as long as you're really fundamentally respecting the, the, the self-ownership and property rights that are associated with that, and it's people voluntarily giving up certain material property rights, I'm totally cool with that. I have, I have no problem with that. You respect me doing my own thing on my 10 acres in Arizona and, and, and you're not forcing your socialism on me, you know, that's, I, I am not ethically in a position to forcibly stop you from doing that. I want you to have that freedom. And, and that's, again, that's why localization is the everybody gets what they want strategy. Yeah, I've always felt that libertarians were a better avenue for socialism than the Democrats. It's strange to me. I mean, genuinely, it's strange to me to see that the Democrats seem to have like a monopoly on it with their one brand of socialism. And And I just, I've always felt like, you, it's how do you have a commune without these property infringements, without, you know, with everything else that they seem to tag along with them, but. I digress. So let's get you through uh, the primary. Yeah, let's, 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 let's lighten around the rest right, of these. Right. <laughs> let's get you through the primary for the libertarians. So again, I'm going to ask this just broadly. You've got the libertarian left, the libertarian socialist, mutualist. You've got the libertarian right, the you know, ANCAPs, capitalists, uh, the Mises caucus. You've got the anarchists, the, you know, who they would call the extremists. Well, well, just, just to be fair, I, I wouldn't say – you know, if you're if you're just an anarcho-capitalist, I think that still puts you in the middle. There are right libertarians who really bring in a lot more that is distinctly keeping them to the right of that. If you've embraced anarcho-capitalism or voluntarism or or something that's founded in that core philosophy, I think you're centered. Pretty well in the middle. I that's a fair observation. I just I, I think uh, I guess I use that. Because their economic philosophy seems okay, okay, so, so right. Yeah, again, it's the you said the capitalists because that's what they see. That's what they want out of it. So it's like, so but but you see why it, you know like if if I'm a libertarian who when the state goes away I want a homestead you wouldn't say well he's a homestead libertarian he's not left or right or center he's a homestead libertarian. If I said well I really want you know I want a nudist colony you know, I want to live in a nudist colony when we get rid of government. You want to say, well, he's a nudist libertarian. Sure. Or he wants a Christian family, you know, traditional whatever, and go to church every Sunday. You want to say, well, he's a Christian libertarian. No, you're a libertarian. Like, and I think, you know, I know every, if you don't have your own label, you're not a real libertarian. Yeah. But it, 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 I think I, I got to take a little bit issue to point out that, that, that while you're right to say there are people who are, Le- genuinely leftist libertarian or genuinely rightist libertarian being libertarian is like being pregnant either you believe in freedom or you don't and once you do there aren't enough of us to divide us i have never loved the labels you talked about a little bit how you said people will take offense at capitalism and anarchy and you know maybe we need to call it voluntarism and for me i'm kind of I hate being the ping pong ball and just flying back and forth on this. Be like, I, my, my views on this haven't changed, but you keep one group says I'm an anarchist. Another one says I'm a minarchist. Another one says I'm a capitalist. These guys say, I mean, I just had, I, I was talking on the enemy of state podcast and somebody said, well, you might even be a socialist just because you're okay with somebody establishing this mutualist society. And it's just, I, I'm, I agree with you on the labels. Would you consider like a right, like the genuinely right libertarians to be more like the paleos maybe then? Like, yeah, the Buchananite types. Okay, okay. Well, let's let's use that then. I, I will I will stop doing that from now on. We'll say the Paleos on the right, 
the the lib socks on the left, the anarchists and the more, well, I mean, mi- middle to extreme and view. Moms, and and the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the minarchists as well. So the minarchists, I mean, traditionally, those are the ones that probably would have given us Bill Will. They gave us, what, Bob Barr. They gave us Gary Johnson. They, they believe that, uh, what, change comes in a suit. So well, hold on. Uh, hold on. I, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, I, because, this is, because this is about being, you know, libertarian presidential primary candidate. I, I, I hope you don't mind me interrupting to, to unpack some of what you just said there, because I think it's really important that people understand uh, what you just said. You said the, the, the minarchists gave us Bob Barr. The minarchists gave us Gary Johnson. And, and I, I take two big issues with that statement. And, and I, I don't want to say it's a lie or it's not true, but I, I do think it's, it's a very careless, and it might be you getting that from someone else, it might be you yourself, misrepresentation of the reality here. And it's that the libertarians the ANCAPs and voluntarists and principled philosophical libertarians gave us those candidates because we stopped showing up at libertarian state and national conventions. And the way that those candidates were able to win was by packing the conventions. And, and this has been, uh, right now, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very confident in, in our ability to, to win the nomination, my campaign, our team, we've done a great job so far. I've been talking about this for years. You know, I've, I've been, you know, my, my, you know, leveraging my minor celebrity status to, to, to enervate my base to, to get them to realize how darn easy it is to win the Libertarian Party nomination. And in, in all of those cases that you mentioned, um, I, I take two issues with, with, with the way you said that. One, because uh, those candidates, uh, certainly Gary Johnson, I can say from what I observed at the, at the national convention in 2016, won by bringing in a lot of people at the last minute to fill empty delegate seats. And there were hundreds out of the thousand or so, and, and the, the nominee is selected by, by popular vote at the convention with no prior binding commitments. None of the, none of the primaries, uh, and there are only a couple states that do libertarian actual primaries. Okay. They're non-binding. They have no relevance on this process. And I am, with my campaign over the last few years, telling people all over the country, start going to your county meetings, start going to your state meetings, and get ready to be a national delegate. Because if someone like you who doesn't genuinely care about this takes one of those seats, then the next Bob Barr or Gary Johnson or Bill Weld is going to come in with a busload of people at the last minute and pack the convention and win. So I take one issue with you in the sense that it's the party base not showing up that has allowed statists to falsely represent libertarianism to the mainstream. And that is, I am disgusted with that because it kills our potential with the message, like in my case, to keep me from joining the Marines, to keep me from torturing people sure. and helping kill people. I would not have done that if, if we had had a different kind of nominee and a different kind of party back in 2000 and 2004 when I was in college. And the second thing is that uh, there, there is a strain, and, and, I, and I, don't, I, I think you don't give enough credit to the party establishment that, that is like maybe three or 400 people uh, you know, all over the country who come to the national conventions consistently because uh, a lot of them uh, are libertarian 
but they will vote for someone who's un, who's not quite a libertarian like Gary Johnson because they they'd rather hide behind the skirts of a moderate because they think that's a better strategy and i think this is a huge tactical error and really plays into the hands of of, of the government and and is really based in fear more than anything we're afraid that if we tell people don't hit people and don't take their stuff, even if you're government, they're going to freak out about how crazy the libertarianism is. They don't want us to hit people and take their stuff. They must be nuts. I'm mean, like, no, there, there is, there is a, a very reasonable way, uh, a, a very measured way, a very cool, calm and collected. I've got a principled plan way to carry this out kind of way that can connect with the American people. And we have missed those opportunities over the last three election cycles because libertarians allowed non-libertarians to nominate non-libertarians in the name of the libertarian party. The the second point that you made, I mean, that's more what I was, what my idea of it was. I, 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 to the first point, I have not, I, I have not been to any conventions before. I've just barely been a member of the libertarian media for even this amount of time. But I, I guess I haven't been aware that they show up with their own delegates if there are empty seats. So that I will claim ignorance to that first part. That makes a lot of sense. The second part was kind of more what I what my perception of the whole convention was, which is I know what's safe. Oh, these guys have been elected. Yeah, they were elected as Republicans, but they're governors. So that's we can hide behind that and then kind of yeah, wrap up our message in that. So it's 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 hard to say though of of, of the four hundred or so people that I'm referring to as that that party establishment of long term. And I don't use it pejoratively here. They're the establishment because they're the ones who keep showing up. They're the ones who make it happen. They're the right. ones who make the party exist. Yeah. Um, of that four hundred, I would say. Three quarters of them are libertarians. Um, it's really only about a quarter of them who are statists who affiliate with the LP because they're not at home with the Republicans or Democrats, or they're you know genu- genuinely Gary Johnson libertarians. That is it, at most a, a quarter of that, and and I think some people would say significantly less. Gotcha. So what's what's let's uh. The actual question, what's your appeal to all those guys? How do you get past those guys? I think I've covered enough of that. I think yeah, okay. it's basically like, you know, it, the, the strategy has failed. Sorry. Look, look the strategy has failed. And, and I'll just say one more thing on that count and to, to go on the negative side of this. Yeah. When, when you go to the American people and say, look, we're the best of both worlds. We're socially liberal and fiscally conservative. It's like the best of what you like about the Democrats and what you like about the Republicans combined into one. And the American people say, oh, you're the best of both worlds, huh? You mean the best of both shit worlds that I really don't want anything to do with? Fuck that. You know, if we're going to win as libertarians, we're, you know, depending on how you want to count us, 1% 1% of the population, I think that's where we are as, as real intellectuals, but, you know, 15, 10 to 15% of the population libertarian inclined. You're never going to even win those people playing their game. But if we're going to win, it's going to be by winning over and motivating the, the 40% of Americans who consistently never vote in presidential elections and say, look, now you've got a reason. Now you have a chance. I'm thinking of changing my middle name to none of the above, by the way. Yeah, we're putting none of the above on the ballot. None of the above is a real option. But think of your dad. 
and nobody gets to be president ever again. The executive order to end all executive orders, as a wise man once said. That is, uh, man, and a handsome guy, too. Uh, so so let's talk, compare yourself to the other libertarian candidates. Again, I think you've addressed this, but let's, let's have you say it again. Why, when you compare to the other candidates that are up there, why are you the best one? Well, I'm not. Uh, not even close. Um, I, I mean, maybe when you say compared to the other libertarian candidates, but, but if I say compared to all of the candidates as a whole or everybody out there who could be president, uh, or, or rather who could take on this task of dissolving the federal government, I am far from the best person from the job. You know, I mean, I, I have uh, experience as a sergeant in the Marine Corps. I know how to walk into a dangerous situation and take charge. Um, I've, I've run an independent media business for most of a decade. You know, I, I kind of know how to manage people and organize a budget. You know, like, I've, honestly, I would love to see uh, Howard Schultz uh, say, you know, I don't agree with everything Adam says. I don't even agree with his basic worldview, but I agree with him and that he is fundamentally right that America would be way better off without the federal government. And I have the corporate experience. I have the administrative experience and I have a better plan to make that happen. I would probably drop out and endorse him and, and do what I could to make sure that he was able to be the one to dissolve the federal government. This is not about me. And it's not that I'm the best candidate for the presidency. It's that I have the only plan that's in line with ethical principles. Everybody else who's running for president is running for president. I am not. I am the only person who right now in any credible, serious way is saying, hey, America, We'd be better off without the federal government. Here's a reasonable plan to make it happen. I might not be the best man for the job, but I'm here. I'm willing. I'm ready. Sign me up. If I got to be the one to sign the executive order to end all executive orders, it would be an honor. But uh, the principle comes first. The message comes first. And in, in the political context, the plan comes first. So I don't want to say anything about, um, you know, my fellow libertarian candidates. From what I know, they're all great people. I mean, you really kind of have to be a great person in, in some way as an activist to run for office as a libertarian. It is, it is, a, it is a great sacrifice. It is, it is a great risk. Um, I, I don't like the word sacrifice. I take that back. It's a, it's a significant investment of time that comes with, with, with some very serious risks. It is a serious investment uh, of your reputation, of, of, of your energy and your, your, your effort and, and, and your, your psyche even as, as invested when, when you put your, your name on the line to run for office. And, and for that, uh, I, I really, truly, heartily uh, uh, support you know, all of the fellow uh, candidates who are running as libertarians. Uh, but, but when it comes down to it, you know, Everybody else, as far as I know right now, who's running for president uh, is, is, is really fundamentally in the same category. They're saying, I want to be president of the United States. Sure. And, and to me, that's wrong. That, that's, that's an ethical transgression pretty much in and of itself. Okay. Not, not verbalizing it, but to be that, to hold that office, to exercise that power, to say, well, people voted for me, so I have this power. Sure. No, sorry. I, I, that's not in line with my ethical principles. 
And, and, and I think that those are the ethical principles that are at the heart of libertarianism. Yeah. Well, it bleeds into my next question. I've, I've worked on a presidential campaign. They are brutal. The president them, himself is always asking for money 90% of the time, is meeting with important people 8% of the time, and sleeping and eating 2% of the time. So do you have a plan in place to, get, to survive all that with the money and the time it takes? Well, uh, I did seven months in combat in Fallujah. What's a little time on the campaign trail? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's a funny way of saying part of a serious answer to that question. But, you know, we've raised um, – I want to be careful to, to state this because I haven't talked to my treasurer recently. But since we announced last January, uh, somewhere over $100,000 okay. and um, – I'm pretty sure already that's that's uh, that's that's a record for for this period of uh, for having for being this far uh, ahead of the game and having already raised and spent that much money. I think I think you know, yeah, I, I don't know how many records we broke with that, but it's 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 at least uh, a few big ones in that sense. Uh, recently, independently for the, the the New Orleans Book Bomb Project, where we delivered. 204,452 copies of this book. Uh, I raised $131,000 to do this. Um, actually, it's closer to 150 with, with everything on top for the logistical support, but for the postage and the printing, and I was able to work with uh, a bunch of sponsors and get a plug for the, uh, for the a big plug for the Libertarian Party in there. Um, we also got the world's smallest political quiz, more sponsors, and... Um, a word about jury nullification in there for what, what that's worth. But, you know, I, I think over my time, um, I guess, well, my other thing I would, I would say to answer that is when I ran for Congress in New Mexico, and it was a similarly long uh, race, not as, not as long as this with the running head start we have now, but, um, you know, I raised over a quarter million dollars in 15 months. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself there. Yeah. When, when, when I need to raise money, uh, you know, I know how to hit the phones. Um, having been a full-time activist for uh, over 11 years now gives me a certain credibility with donors. When I, when, 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 you know, when any other candidate calls a donor and says, well, you gave to someone like me last year. I'm the guy like them this year. What were you doing last year? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing, you know, and, and when they go, when, when they take a call from Adam Tokesh, they go, oh, it's Adam, the guy from Adam versus the man. Oh, the guy from dancing. Oh, the guy with the shotgun. Oh, the guy who's been dedicating his life to the cause of freedom for the last 11 years and gone to jail numerous times for it. Oh, what can I do for you? You know, and I, and I think bringing that credibility, not just to, to this campaign already as a candidate, but to uh, to the general election and, and, and everything else, I think I think that gives me uh, a unique advantage there. In terms of the campaign trail, you know, I mean, we did we did kind of a warm up tour last spring. I was I was on the road for six months straight, yeah. and you know, I mean, there's I, I like being at home. There's a reason I'm a homesteader. You know, I like I like my my quiet ten acres in the middle of nowhere. But when I got a mission. Mission accomplishment is just above troop welfare, and, and I'm, I'm going to get the job done kind of guy.
right. Well, I hope you get the get a medal for this one that makes you feel good and that you don't have to go back <laughs> afterwards. Well, I, I'm, I, the, hey, the medal that I wear now, I don't have it on. I wear the, the lifetime member button when I oh. dress up for, for Libertarian Party functions. That's that's all I need. You know? Awesome. That makes you feel good enough. So very last question. This might be the shortest and the easiest one. If people heard you, want to get in touch with you, interested in your campaign, how do they sign up? How do they contact you? Well, the main thing is to go to my main website. Thefreedomline.com is what I'm reading there. Yep, that's it. Thefreedomline.com. And from there, you can find kokeshforpresident.com without having to remember how to spell my funny last name. And you can find me on social media and everything else for that. And now, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not doing any big public fundraising right now. We're not, we're not, you know, begging for money online. Um, because what I'm, what I'm begging for, what I'm asking for, when I, like right now, like I said, I was, I told you I was whipping delegates. Um, if there are people who want to support my campaign, and, and I'm very confident in, in, in saying this on this channel because I know that the people who are motivated by, by my message are uniquely motivated as I am. And if, if you really want to help, put yourself in a position to be a delegate for the 2020 National Libertarian Convention. And I don't say that so you can vote for me because, first of all, you don't know what you're voting for until we publish the executive uh, order. And we will have at least a, a rough draft of that on our website by the, the 2020 national convention. So you will know by the time I am actually asking for anybody's vote, you will know exactly what you are voting on. And it's not for me to be president. It's for this exact plan to be carried out by myself or someone else. I, I don't particularly care. Um, and I want people uh, to know how easy it is in, you know, in, in like with the empty seats in most states, you could go to the state convention, raise your hand when they say, who wants to be a delegate? And they go, oh, well, I guess we don't have too many. You're all delegates. Y'all get, you know, we got all oh, that's 18 out of 20 spots. Okay. Oh, there's, oh, there's 24 of you. Well, four of you are going to be alternates and, you know, four of you are probably going to drop out by the convention. So that's fine. You know, everybody gets to go. Um, some states are competitive, but, you know, if it, if we took all of the effort that people have spent complaining about Gary Johnson over the last three years and put that effort into building the Libertarian Party and showing up to meetings and, and making shit happen, we would never have another candidate like that ever again. And it would never be an issue. I am, am pretty confident we are going to reach the first goal of this campaign, which is possibly the most important one to me, that we will not have any empty delegate seats at all by the end of state convention season, yeah. spring 2020. Not just by the convention, but by the end of state convention season, I want every single state in the country to be competitive. And I highly encourage, for the other, for the other candidates, I'm not trying to hide my strategy, and if there are other libertarian candidates who are watching the series, I advise them to do the exact same thing that I'm doing in this regard. Get your people to show up. Forget about social media, unless you're talking about maintaining some other presence. Like, I don't say forget, you know, maintain your presence, have a website, you know, do all that. But how are you going to win the nomination? And how is your campaign to win the nomination going to help the party? 
And I can tell you right now, it's because my campaign is encouraging people to go to meetings. I, when people say, hey, Adam, I can give you a hundred bucks. I say, hey, that's gas money. Get to the next count, get to your next county meeting. Yeah. You know, get to your, make sure you can get to your next state convention. Make sure you have your calendar marked. And this is, you know, it's not hard, but it does take a thoughtful, deliberate, conscientious effort to know when meetings are, to get out, to get off your ass, off the couch, to, to, to get out and say, I'm not going to watch TV or screw around tonight. I'm going to go to a, I'm going to go to a political meeting yeah. and it might be boring. It might be tedious. I think they're mostly fun, but you know, that's just cause I'm that kind of political nerd, but they're not, it's not like it's work, you know, like it's not, no, and nowhere even close to, to work, but it, it, it is, it is an effort. And, and I am asking people to, to go to Austin in 2020 and have an awesome weekend with a thousand plus fellow libertarians at the biggest libertarian event of the year in the country to help select whoever is going to be the nominee of the party in 2020. I, I hope it's, it's me and, and my team gets the chance to turn the election genuinely into a referendum in 2020. But, but if not, I hope that enough people who really do care about the message show up to ensure that, that we really do have the best candidate for the Libertarian Party and, and, and for the cause of freedom. Yeah, awesome. Well, man, thank you so much for joining us and putting for all that meaningful time in with us, talking about everything, the freedomline.com. He's holding up now if you're watching the video. Uh, get a book, get a copy of the book, get a copy of freedom, check it out, read it, have it change your life. I mean, that'll probably do better for, uh, better for him than just getting indoctrinated by him. Right. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, I think it was Marquis de Lafayette. They offered him the crown of France and he rejected it because he didn't believe in crowns. And it's one of those, uh, I, I sense some of that spirit in you a little bit. And, uh, I, I like that attitude about it. So it's, it's a very unique campaign you're running. The difference is I would take the crown and destroy it. And then break it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very unique. Uh, we will have more of these. There'll be more debates. I know this one was, was very structured. We'll have more conversational type uh, questions. Uh, a lot of the candidates were disappointed that I didn't ambush them with any questions, but I'll have, I'll have many more curveballs later. But it was a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you putting in all the time and, 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 and all that thought. Uh, into into everything you do and in, in your responses. Likewise. Well, Louis, I, I want to just sign off and say thank you for your time and putting this together. And for anybody who's who's made it through this uh, what hour and a half plus interview and and enjoyed it. And, and if you've enjoyed Hody's work in this, really, it's it's an important time in, in in the development of the internet right now to support independent media. So please, if you're not going to share this episode, share other stuff of his, share his pages. Tell people that you know outside who might not hear this that they might appreciate this message and they might have fun listening to this stuff too. He said everything I was going to say, guys. So it's coming from him, not me this time. That's a non-biased source right there. So yeah, subscribe to We Are Libertarians. Share our stuff. Share this episode. Tell us what you think. Let him know what you think, good or bad. All media is good media. Get it out there and let us know. It's, uh, it's all overriding the mainstream media. Thank you again, Adam, and thank you for listening. <laughs>